Please stand with me at the reading of God's word for us from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This message comes to us in a day where churches celebrate wins and brag about all their numbers. And pastors compare how many baptisms they have and how big their budget is. And where you've been led to think that that's where life is, is finding a church like that. You're tempted, like we all are, in this place to think that is what is real. Listen to the strange words of Jesus in Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. Beloved, I pray that we can hear Christ. Because you have been raised in a church culture that says you should be able to see a menu of ministries and you pick the one that has the best menu to cater to your comforts. And you live in a world and a country where dreams come true. We need the letter to the church in Smyrna. We need to believe this message from the Lord Jesus that a faithful death comes before a rich life. That is the the letter summarized in a sentence. The gospel truth of this passage is a faithful death always comes before and not after a rich life. These letters follow this pattern that has four parts. Christ, commendation, call, and consequence. Christ, commendation, call, and consequence. And listen, because what is natural in our hearts And what kind of Christian life we want, what kind of church we want to be a part of, 
is totally at odds with the kind of trouble that Jesus says his followers should expect. Point number one from verse eight, Christ, the living God who died. Every letter sent throughout modern day Turkey and John's day, it always begins with Christ. It always begins with Jesus telling that specific church something specific about him. And he says to Smyrna, I am the first and the last. Listen, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, stop looking at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. You do not understand the book of Revelation by reading the news today, by watching the events of the day. You understand the book of Revelation by understanding the Old Testament. And when Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, he's quoting Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the only God, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus is saying to Smyrna, listen to me. And besides me, there is no God. Jesus is first. He is first. He is before all things. There is nothing that was before the Son of God. And there is nothing that will outlast Jesus. You need to know that in this world. And you also need to know that He's the last. After this world is defeated, He will be standing. He cannot be defeated. I am the first and the last, the one who died and who lives. How can God die? It's the strange introduction of the Lord Jesus that we need to press into that strangeness to say, I'm the last and no one can defeat me and I died. Jesus would remind us that He's not just God. He is more than God. He is also a man. And He wants Smyrna and, if you look in verse 11, all the churches, including ours, to know that this is coming straight from the mouth of the one who died and who lives. A faithful death comes before a rich life. Point number two comes in verse 9. It's Jesus' commendation. The second part of each of these letters is either a commendation or a condemnation. Here, with the church in Smyrna, He commends them for being troubled. He commends this church and affirms this church for all their trouble. Now, the city of Smyrna different from the church in Smyrna. The city of Smyrna was on the western coast of of Asia Minor. It was this gorgeous city sloping up from the Aegean Sea. It was really wealthy. When you go into this gorgeous city, you saw these really impressive buildings. Caesar from the conquering of that land when Rome was spreading out 
Caesar always found the citizens of Smyrna to be uniquely loyal, or you could use the words of our text, faithful to him, to that king. That was the city of Smyrna. Now look at the church of Smyrna in verse 9. Jesus is walking, remember, among the lampstands, it said at the end of chapter 1. He's walking to the, the lights of this world, the, the, the ones who are faithful witnesses to the light of the world, the, the churches of Jesus. And when he's walking among the church of Smyrna, he says, I know you. I've observed you. I'm not ignoring what's going on. And what I know about you, church, is you are the opposite of your city. The church of Smyrna is the opposite, according to verse 9. To the city of Smyrna, three ways. Number one, they are troubled. They're facing tribulation. Let me help you read the book of Revelation. When you see the word tribulation... Stop thinking of end times tribulation. If what you're thinking is some future, distant future from when John is writing. Don't think of end times that way. Think of end times the way that the Bible talks about the end times. The last days are here, Jesus said. We are in the end times, not just because we're far away from John 2,000 years later. They were in the end times. And they were facing a Trouble, which is just a tribulation, is just a general term for suffering. Jesus is speaking to that specific church. He's talking to them about what they're experiencing, not what, what will not happen until the very end. Before Jim LaHaye or whatever his name was uh, predicted all these things through his little books. That's not what he's talking about. The end times are here, and they were there, and Smyrna was facing trouble right then. And I want you to see that when he says, I know your tribulation, he doesn't correct them. He commends them. Let that strange word fall on your heart. He knows their suffering. He's observing it all, walking with them. He's with them. In their suffering. And he's going to do something about it. If you believe that. If you believe Jesus knows your suffering. The suffering that you experience because you're faithful to him. If you believe that. If you believe he knows it. And he doesn't not care about it. But he knows it in a way where he's with you and present with you. And that he's going to do something about it. I mean if you know it. If you believe that. And that's going to greatly affect how you handle every difficulty that comes to you because of your relationship with Christ. If you believe he's with you, if you believe he's going to do something about it, that will prevent you from feeling like you've got to do something about it. That will prevent you from thinking that you must be doing something wrong because of it. He doesn't correct them. The second thing he says in the way that they are different, the city of Smyrna is they are extremely poor. In that day... It would be hard as a Christian to find a job because most every job revolved around worshiping Caesar, making things for the Roman government. And not just making things, but like worshiping him. And when they they had their lunch breaks, they went to the temple and they would worship the false gods of Rome and they would worship 
Caesar. So to become a Christian and not engage in that was to have a hard time finding a job. Most of them were very poor in Smyrna. And the the employees of Smyrna, or the employers, they they didn't want to hire Christians. They didn't want to be, I mean, the, the, the bad word then was to be called a Christian lover. They didn't want to be blacklisted for not being supportive to Caesar. And that leads to the third way that the church is different from the city, strange from the world. They were slandered. They were slandered by those who think they are Jews but are not Jews. Now the Jews in that day had special privileges from Rome. They were granted a, 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 the, the, the designation of being an official religion which meant so long as you honor Caesar as king, you do not have to worship him as God. The rest of the Roman world had to worship Caesar, the king of Rome, as God. But the Jews had this exception. So long as they honor him as king. And we just sang, glory, glory, we have no other king. That's based on scripture when the Pharisees, when they were going to try to persuade the Roman government to kill Jesus, said, we have no other king but Caesar. That's the way the Jews lived. They weren't going to worship Christ as king. They treated Caesar as king. And they didn't like it when the Roman government saw all the relationship between the Jews. The same Bible and as, as the Christians. They, they said, they, we'll give you special privileges too. And so what the Jews started to do was slander Christians. And they would go to the Roman authorities and say, they don't honor Caesar as king. Don't let them have any kind of special privileges. Because they believed that Christ was a blasphemer. And so if you were to worship Jesus as God, the Jews thought, you're the ones who's blaspheming. And so they slandered Christians in Smyrna for not acknowledging the crown of Rome. But notice the attitude of the real king toward those so-called Jews. They are the ones who are blaspheming. The word slander, you may have a note in your Bibles, is the word blaspheme. They are accusing you of blasphemy. They're the ones who are blaspheming. They think they are the real people of God. They're not the real people of God. They are in reality a synagogue of Satan. Listen to me. Because this message comes to us as well. The Jews were unwilling to follow a crucified king. And if you are unwilling to follow a crucified king to a cross, if you do not think and live like Jesus is worth a lifetime of trouble, then he will call you a Satan worshiper as well. If you worship the things of this world, then you gather together with the rest of the world in the synagogue of Satan, like the Jews. But this letter is refreshing waters to a parched and weary soul. Because Jesus is giving the perspective of heaven, a perspective that the church of Smyrna would not have heard in their world. 
the members of the church of Smyrna show up to church that day and they hear the voice of Jesus. And the voice of Jesus is speaking into all the accusations in their heart, all the accusations of Satan, all the accusations of their co-workers and their family and their friends that must have so often seemed so true. They come to church and they would have been dealing with the accusations. Why is it that you are so troubled? Why is it that you are so poor in this prosperous city? Do you really belong to a king? Jesus sends a letter and says, you are mine. He says, you may be a poor church in a rich city, but you are the ones who are actually rich in every way. That actually matters. And Jesus is not guilt-tripping his church. He's not saying, you think you're, you're poor, but you really are rich. He's not calling along Sally Struthers or whatever that lady was and saying, hey, Sally, why don't you show them some pictures of the kids in Ethiopia? You think you got it bad. Look at this. He's not doing this to the church in Smyrna. He's saying, you are rich spiritually. You are rich spiritually. Right now, you own treasures in heaven, their treasures, their riches, moth and and rust will destroy and thieves can take. That's not the kind of riches you have and you've got riches. Revelation, the point of the whole book is to give to the people of earth an alien perspective on reality. Jesus is writing to churches on earth and he's saying, this is the way I see things. This is the way things really are. And you need to listen to this because all you're hearing otherwise is these other interpretations of reality. You need to hear this. Redeemer Church, you need to hear this. Do not believe the reality that everyone else is preaching. Listen. Listen to Jesus to Smyrna. A church that impresses people. A church that can impress people who do not adore Jesus. If a church is impressive to people who don't love Jesus, Jesus may not take any notice of that kind of church at all. But the encouraging word from Jesus to Smyrna is you can be severely struggling and not be poor and not be rejected. Smyrna is one of only two churches that Jesus does not correct. The other five he rebukes in some way. Take this in. What the world condemns, Jesus commends. What the world says is a sign of rejection. Is what Jesus says is proof of righteousness. A faithful death comes before a rich life third part of the letter is the call in verse 10. He says, be faithful unto death. He says, don't fear prison. Do you remember this scene in the book of Job whenever Satan approaches God and God says to Satan, have you considered Job? God offers up his faithful servant. Satan didn't ask about Job. God presented Job to Satan. 
And Satan said, well, does he worship you for nothing? Look at all of his popularity. Look at his his big, wonderful, loving, godly family and his friends. Look at all of his prosperity. Look how rich Job is as he worshiped you for nothing. And so God says, then bring suffering. Suffering, according to Job and Jesus in verse 10, is the best test for the reason why we worship the Lord. Suffering will be the best test for, to, to discern what is the real reason we are serving Jesus. The question is, will you obey? Not when things are going well. Will you serve Christ and try to please Christ when everything in life is taken away? You've got to hear this. Because we live in a world where if you go to the prayer meetings, I'm great. This is one of the things I'm most grateful about in our churches, the different kinds of prayers we're praying. But the majority of prayer meetings throughout the Christian, the Bible Belt, the so-called Christian world, you will find churches full of people who are begging the Lord for popularity and for prosperity. That's what they're asking And I want you to see that Jesus is calling the church to be the opposite of the city that they're living in. Smyrna was famous for being faithful to Caesar. They had more than one temple to Caesar. They were so faithful to Caesar, sent them a lot of money. And the church is the opposite in verse 9. And yet what many Christians today pray for Outside of North Korea, anyway. Whenever they gather to pray, what do you pray for? What are you praying for? On your bed, in the morning and at night, what are you asking him for? What the majority, what, what many, what many Christians are praying for is for the Lord to remove the greatest evils they see in their lives. That has to do with relationship problems they have. That's what they're praying for. They're praying for greater health. They're praying for a better job. They're praying for their financial stresses to be taken away. Or they're, they're praying for their fear of those things being attacked and, to, and, and taken away from them. But notice what Jesus says and what he does not say to the church in Smyrna. He doesn't say, I know you are suffering and I'm going to take away all your trouble. He doesn't say, I'm going to lift you out of poverty. What does he say? In verse 10, the devil's going to make it worse. He's going to put you in prison. Literally, not figuratively. He's literally going to put some of the members of the church in Smyrna in prison. And he says, do not be afraid of that. I'm going to let the devil make it worse for you. What a strange word. In this world. What a sorting word. The church in Smyrna will be no different than the city of Smyrna. We will be no different from our world if we beg the most powerful being we know to give us our best life now. We are no different from the world. Just because we don't go to Caesar and we go to Christ... If all we're doing when we go to Christ is what they do when they go to the most powerful being they can think of, 
then we are no different. Listen to me. Listen to Christ. Being poor for the rest of your life is not your greatest enemy. Being alone for the rest of your life is not your greatest enemy. Being slandered, being lied about, and having a reputation that is not favorable, that, that, that cuts off a lot of privileges for the rest of your life is not your greatest enemy. A life sentence in prison wrongly is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Now, preacher, hold up. Why are you talking about it being that bad? Jesus isn't talking about a lifetime. He says it's 10 days. It's just 10 days. And I, with his help, can endure about 10 days of anything if after those 10 days I can return to my people and my possessions. Revelation is full of two things, imagery and Old Testament. Verse 10, I think is referencing Daniel chapter 1. If you remember this, Daniel and his buddies were tested for 10 days. He was tested for 10 days. Because they were resisting the rest of the Babylonian world who, was, who were supposed to eat the king's delicacies. Daniel said, I'm not going to eat the king's delicacies. I'm going to get life from God. I won't do it. He was tested for 10 days. It's full of the Old Testament. It's also full of imagery. 10 in the Bible represents fullness based on the Ten Commandments. And so what Jesus is saying is you're going to be tempted for a full amount of time, an unspecified amount of time. It could mean the rest of your time, the fullness of the rest of your life. And the question is for them and for us, will we, before the test is over, turn to Caesar? Will we turn to Nebuchadnezzar's delicacies and try to get out of this world our satisfaction? Or will we be like Daniel and endure that test and come out more alive in the end. The beginning of verse 10, do not fear, only makes sense when we look at the end of verse 10. Do not fear, because if you're faithful unto death, you will receive a certain consequence. And that's point number four from verse End of verse 10 and verse 11. If you are faithful to the end and don't fear, you will receive this consequence, the crown of life. Or, to put it another way, the second death will not hurt you. One of John's disciples eventually became the bishop of the church of Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. In the middle of the second century, he was asked, by a Roman governor to confess Caesar as Lord. That would have amounted to repentance from his confession that Jesus is Lord. He asked him to recant the lordship of Jesus and Polycarp refused. So that governor brought him into a stadium and encouraged him. Swear that Caesar is Lord and I will set you free. Reproach or hate Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him and he never did me any injury. 
how can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And then the governor pressed him again. And the old man said, since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who I am and what I am, then let me declare this boldly. I am a Christian. And then the governor came back and said, I have wild beasts right here, and I will throw you to them unless you repent. I will throw you into the fire, seeing that you hate the wild beasts, if you will not repent and turn to Caesar. And Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour, and after that is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you delaying? Do what you will. And the Roman, the Roman governor called the Roman people to gather the wood and then the Jews eagerly helped them. And Polycarp was burned at the stake in A.D. one. Beloved, your prayers may reveal what you think is the greatest punishment you can face. Your prayers may reveal what you think is the greatest evil you could endure. Because you're asking the Lord to keep that from you. But the greatest punishment is not that we would suffer anything in this life. The greatest punishment is not that we would only suffer in this life. Polycarp was weighing his options logically. He was weighing the choices. The greatest punishment, he said, is reserved for the greatest evil. The second death, which Revelation 20 identifies as the lake of fire that burns forever and ever, that the ungodly will be sent into. Hell. Polycarp feared the second death. The one, everyone who dies will potentially face. The second one is worse than the first one. So he says... I fear the second one more than the first one. Why are you delaying? Bring on the first one. The greatest evil in Polycarp's mind was to be faithless to the Lord Jesus. The greatest evil in the world that the world will never tell you is to choose to have the whole world over choosing to honor Jesus in this short Life compared to trillions upon trillions of years. And the best thing isn't just a few decades of minding your own business and being free to accumulate wealth and a good life here. The best thing is not that. It is the crown of life. And there's only one way to do it. One way to get it. Be faithful unto death. Were you encouraged by the reading earlier? 
when Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that encouraging? God will be faithful no matter who is faithless to him. How were you encouraged by that? Did you think Paul meant if you are faithless to God, he's still going to save you? If you do, you weren't listening. Because Paul said, if we have died with him, if we die to this world, if we take up a cross and follow him, then we will live with him. He said, right before the encouraging verse, which is so encouraging. He said, if we endure in the context suffering, then we will also reign in his kingdom with him. He said, right before those extraordinarily encouraging words, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he's not going to be faithless. He's going to keep that word. He's going to keep the word if you deny him. If you love this world, he's going to deny you. How encouraging. How encouraging. Because if you die with him, you're going to live with him. If the world kills you, you got a crown. He's going to keep that word. He will be faithful to his word. He doesn't say, just be faithful. He doesn't just say, be faithful in your initial prayer and then live however you want. He doesn't say, be faithful for your life. He says, be faithful unto death. And that is slightly different, isn't it? Real faith, in other words, is shown in being so faithful that it gets you killed. And yet it doesn't kill your obedience. Be faithful when your faithfulness gets you killed. And when they threaten you with death, obey them. Isn't that the proof that you really believe them? I'm staking it all on you. What's your delay? He's going to keep his word. This isn't just to Smyrna in John's day or Polycarp's day. It's to all the churches who have an ear to hear, according to verse 11. It's to the the persecuted church in Indonesia when Kyle Schiff several years ago was visiting us from the mission there in Indonesia. And he was talking about one of his brothers in the church who was taken before the authority and was was threatened with death. And and someone asked him or made the the comment that they're going to pray for their safety. And Kyle said, do not pray for our safety. If I went back and I told this brother that you're praying for for their safety, they would be so discouraged. They would be so offended that you would pray that they wouldn't face that kind of suffering. Don't pray for that. Don't just fill your prayers with that. Pray for faithfulness in suffering. God, when you bring the devil against me for my test, For my trouble, make me faithful. Don't let me turn away from you. Don't let the the world of Caesar look too precious to me. Give me a vision of the crown of life. Make me faithful in suffering. I want that more than I want a cancer-free life. Give me cancer more than 10 lifetimes of prosperity or popularity. I want you, Christ. 
That's Christianity. That's the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. I'm grateful that Jesus did not promise to redeem our church. Maybe he's willed it, but he has not, we're not hearing this as a promise that some of our members are about to go to prison, literally. That could happen in our lifetime. It's even easier to think about that before our children die, this so-called Christian nation will do that to Christians. But the same devil is doing the same work in this self-righteous town that denies the lordship of Christ. Listen, the devil doesn't care how he gets you. And he ain't no dummy. He's been able to see what persecution has done to the gospel. He's been able to hear things like what Kyle said. He sees how when you threaten prison and death, how pure the church gets, how serious Christians get. So he is happy to keep us in our small, clean, safe, religious town. Away from all the crazies. And Satan is still doing the same work, trying to get you to recant. That's what he's doing. He's trying to get you to worship this world. Your safety. Your riches. He's trying to get you to worship Caesar and try to get from this world your best life. Are you going to receive the crown of life? Or are you going to repent to Caesar? Do not answer that too quickly. Do not be so confident that you could never turn away from Jesus when we live such easy lives. Instead, listen to Jesus. And look at Jesus. The key that he gives to each church for how they can endure the test and the tribulation that's coming to them is to know him the way that he reveals himself. This is the secret. You've got to know him for who he reveals himself to be. I don't mean just generally know Christ. I mean know verse 8. I mean know Christ for what he is in verse 8. Christ is always the key to the call. If the call is to be faithful unto death, then, then the key is what Jesus says about himself in verse 8. He said it in chapter 1 as well. Listen to this. This is the key. This is how you can answer. This is what you have to keep in front of you during your test. Verse 17 of chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I'm the one who has the keys of death and Hades. I have it. I died. I'm alive. I'm the king. That's the key. They mocked him. We have no king but Caesar. Right on there, he said that he was king of the Jews. They mocked him. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They put the purple 
cloak around him. They, they mocked him when they bowed down to them. And then they, they killed him. If you're the king, if you're God, how can you die? And he died. He's not dead. He's alive. And he has the crown that God gave to him. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's the key. You get it? If you're here and you do not, you're not totally devoted. I mean totally. That's the only way to be devoted is totally devoted. He's your life. Then you have a lot to be afraid of. The second death is coming for you. And it will never end. There is a first death that you're trying to make never come to you. And it's going to come as well. And that one will end. There's another one. Don't be foolish. That will never end. The how of Jesus being the first and the last, how can he die, is not as clear in our minds as the why did he die. Why did God die? He became a man to die so that man could live beyond the first death and have victory over death. Don't be a fool. Trust Christ and follow Christ. The world may not see his crown. They don't want his crown. Graham, even though there may be some who say they're the real people of God, but they're not, If you don't recognize the king and obey him as king, you're not. Doesn't matter how many family members can agree with you. We live in a town that will accuse people for taking Christ at his word. Who will accuse us of being legalistic because we want to obey him, like really obey him. Or we're unloving for doing what he says. Forget them. You honor Christ. You raise your kids the way Christ tells you to raise your kids. You treat your spouse not the way your Christian friends at work are talking about your spouse. You you treat your spouse the way that Christ would be honored by you treating your spouse. Don't cheat at work. Doesn't matter that everyone else says. Doesn't matter that your boss, Caesar, wants you to do it. Doesn't matter if you lose your job to do it. Don't do it. Christ is king. Don't be laughing at sin with your friends. Christ isn't laughing. Will you pass your test of tribulation? The question is, do you believe death can hurt you? Do you believe death can hurt you? Are you rich when you're poor? Are you so convinced of the future certainty of your riches that that you believe Jesus when he says you are present tense rich right now when you're poor? You are. It's mine. Or if they take your money or your job or your relationship, have you lost everything? Are you more afraid of disobeying Jesus than you are of dying? Your 10 days of suffering, well, it also is, is brief, isn't it, in comparison? It's going to end. 
it's going to end. But the second death will not end. Don't live for the first life. Live for the second life. Don't reach for the first crown. You have to die in faith to get the real one. Christ promises and His love for you have to be more precious than trouble is terrible to you. This is what the devil does not want you to hear. This is what the world around us does not want us to hear. The gospel is not just about your forgiveness. The gospel is about your following. Your following. A king who died and now lives. Real faith does not die when death is at stake. Real faith leads to a real resurrection and riches that this world cannot offer us. A faithful death comes before a rich life. Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause us to believe your word. You would make us faithful. You would cause us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow the king who died but is raised. Lord, what a gift that you would share your crown. We pray that we would receive it no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.